Again, good morning. Good morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16 now today. We'll start heading that way here to your Bibles. I'll do the same. We used to have music right about this time, and so the transition is still awkward to me. Not there yet. Um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm glad we can gather and worship the Lord together this morning. Uh, I, I know you come in here with all sorts of frustrations, or you're at home with frustrations, and, and the whole world is kind of askew right now. Uh, I just, I, I'm thankful that we can come together and, and worship the Lord, and I appreciate everyone. Um, that's not part of the sermon. It's not my notes, in case you're wondering. That's weird notes, right? Uh, so anyway, we're in Luke 16 today. Uh, just a reminder, we're, as we are preaching through this, we, we end up hitting it in sections, and, and it's sometimes easy to, to start to see them as divided into these weird sections uh, and, and holding them apart as if there's walls between them. There's not. There's a, a, a whole theme that's going on that's, that's, that's you know, throughout all of Scripture, but uh, particularly as you're moving through each chapter of the book of Luke. And, and just to remember, as we're reading today, to put into this wider context that Jesus has been talking, uh, showing us over and over again, you know, that, that wealth is a great tool and maybe a great gift of the Lord, but wealth is a terrible master if you're going to make it. Uh, you know, remember that he's just told us that you, you can love God or you can love money, but you can never love both of those. And he's just condemned the Pharisees, in fact. Why? Because they are lovers of money instead of lovers of God. That's the divide going on here. And so as we read this passage, if you just look at the small section, it's easy to think this is all about being poor and all about being rich, and, and that's not what it is. See, the Lord's telling us this parable. He's contrasting this rich man uh, who loves his money, when you look at the wider context, with this poor man who, who loves God and, and trusted God. And you won't see that explicitly in the text, so you've got to understand the wider context. And that's why I'm taking all this time to tell you that ahead of time uh, before we get in and read this. But... Uh, Let's, let's head there to, to Luke 16, verse 19, we'll read to the end of the chapter today. Uh, let's get started. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torments, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of the, besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been, has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
he said to them, They do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Grass withers, the flower fades. Pray. Almighty God, you have given us these holy scriptures, ordinary and yet powerful means of grace. And we know that we need the Holy Spirit, Lord, to enlighten our minds this morning if we are to fully and rightly understand this passage and be changed by it. And so we ask you now to do that work that you do for your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right off the bat, he starts telling us about this rich man. The reason Jesus tells us that he's wearing purple and fine linen is just to say, this man is crazy. He's rich. He's very wealthy. That's uh, why Jesus tells us also that every day that he's eating these fancy meals that are sumptuous, right? And if you're wondering, if in the Greek you actually see uh, sumptuous. It's not a word we use, but you probably need to. Uh, when you're having nice meals, right? Sumptuous things are really fancy, luxurious, wonderful meals. Uh, but he's saying he does it every day. All these meals are sumptuous. Uh, it'd be a lot like if, if you decided from now on you're going to eat every single one of your meals uh, down at Urban and Baker. Every single one of them. You're going to order more of those tiny little plates with the tasty food on it than you could possibly eat. And, and that's just the way all of your meals are going to be. And you can do that just because you're so incredibly rich and willing to spend the money that way. Now, again, you can probably hear me say this a few times, right? But remember, being rich is not an evil thing. Many of God's most faithful servants were crazy rich and used that money to glorify the Lord. So that's not the issue. Now, even in this story, right, wealth is not being condemned. Rather, his love of wealth, his love of money, using this money only for his own selfish indulgence, uh, is, is revealing what's really being condemned. And it's revealing that the man loves money and himself. He does not love God. He trusts money to do for him and whatever he needs. He does not trust the Lord, and that's what's being condemned. So, so the man is rich. Uh, he also has this fancy gate uh, at the entrance of his home, and someone has, has carried this, this homeless man who is in poor shape. He's crippled. Uh, he's got sores all over his body, and he lays him at the gate. Right? And, and there's a reason for that. We'll go back to that in a second. But um, a few years ago, I'll just tell you a quick story. A few years ago, Laura and I were with some friends in Ohio, and we had this really nice restaurant, fancy restaurant, we went out to one night, and, and we all had this lobster bisque. This is the thing they do, and it's amazing. It comes in this dish, and it has like a Popeye uh, crust on top of it, and this was some sumptuous food, if ever there were any. Uh, now, at the end of the meal, I kind of got distracted, and when I looked back at the plate, at the table, the, the waitress had come and was taking away my dish, and I looked on her tray and saw, oh, she has Laura's dish also, and, and Laura had to finish her. So I reached for it, like, oh, I'm going to eat that. And her eyes just bug at me, and like, she looked at me like I was this terrible monster. What are you doing? Like, just a monster. And then I looked at the rest of the table, and Laura and her friends are looking at me like I'm some nasty monster. Uh, it turns out it wasn't Laura's dish at all. It was some strangers that she just happened to be walking by, and here I am taking it off her tray, ready to, to eat after someone else. Uh, it was gross, right? And, and they all reacted like it's disgusting. And once I realized that I'm not a monster, I don't want that, I kind of want that. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's this disgusting thing, and, and I, I point that out because that's the absolute hope, like the high-end hope of this homeless man outside the gate of the rich man, uh, he's hoping that the food that falls from his table 
Uh, often the old food that would fall from the table to, they, they didn't have napkins, so they used bread to clean up all the nastiness on their mouth and just throw it on the ground. It was very, COVID-19 wasn't a thing. Uh, and, and this idea was, was that's what he's hoping to eat. And so you kind of put it in perspective. Now, the, the poor man's name here is Lazarus. This is not the same guy who's the brother of Mary and Martha. For one, this is terrible. That guy, the real guy. Um, Lazarus, though, was a common name, and it, and it means God has helped. That's what Lazarus means. Now, if you think about this story, that's a little bit ironic to say that his name means God has helped, because if you looked at the story, at this point in the story, you had to guess which one of these people has God helped, the rich man or the poor man outside the gate, it, it would be very easy. There's no way you would pick that. You just wouldn't. Because he looks more like the one who God has forsaken. Right? Because if most of us were in Lazarus' place, be honest, how many of us would be asking, where is God? Where is God in this moment when, when I'm begging for his food and he won't even give me any, and he's just living it up and it continues to go great for him? You know, I, I love God, and so why is my life poverty and disability and sores and hunger? And it is the God. Now, we don't see Lazarus complaining. I think that's on purpose. We, we see them there, intently outside the gates. Um, you see... It's hard not to realize that, that what Lazarus is, is able to do is something that all of us really need to learn to be able to do. He's, he, he's believing that God loves him despite his painful circumstances. Believe. You see, the point of Jesus even telling us here that the, the dogs are licking his sores, um, mangy mutt kind of things that we're talking about, wild dogs. But anyway, they're, they're doing that because it, it would feel good. I know this grosses us out, but it would feel good to have somebody lick your sores. And, and the, the whole point then is that here are the dogs. These, these are like not pets. These are gross animals at this, at this time. But here they are actually showing compassion to this poor man outside the gate. Well, Lazarus shows him absolutely none. Or, sorry, well, the rich man shows him absolutely none. none. Now, again, right, I'm going to tell you this a number of times. Riches are not the issue. The issue is that man loved money. He did not love God. He did not love his neighbor. You don't see that word of the Spirit in him. This rich man, in fact, is a living example of 1 John 3, 17, which tells us, but if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And the assumption of that answer to that question is, well, it doesn't. That's exactly the case with rich men. Now, I know we see this, and we're, it's easy for us to feel sorry for Lazarus, the poor guy, and you feel contempt for the rich man. What a, what a terrible guy that he can't throw a bone in this guy, or literally throw him some actual food on the bone, whatever it might be. Um, and, 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 and yet, think about this for a moment. If you just want to explore your own heart, what would you do if a homeless guy decided to set outside your door, set a pan, and beg you for food, looking in your window when you're eating, hoping you'll maybe give them some of that. I mean, what, how would you really, really respond to something? And you can think about that. I'm not pushing you around that. Um, and so then in verse 22, we, we learn that they both die. We don't know how, we don't care. They just, they both die. Uh, and Jesus tells us that Lazarus is carried to Abraham's side, uh, and the rich man finds himself in a place called Hades. Now, before we go further, you need to know, uh, again, this is a parable. It is not intended to be a scientific explanation, a geographical explanation of what heaven and hell uh, look like. We shouldn't assume that in heaven you're going to be able to yell back and forth between 
uh, people that are in the opposite side. We should assume that there's this massive chasm between the two. Uh, and, and if we, you know, again, it's a parable. One, they wouldn't actually have bodies at this point, right? Uh, but understand this, as, as John Calvin put it, the Lord is painting a picture which represents the condition of the future life in a way that we can't understand, and that's a big aspect of it. So there's many things for us to learn here, but it's not, it's not a scientific explanation of what's going on here. So then, at his death, we finally see the fulfillment of Lazarus' name, right? God has helped. Uh, we see the way that God has helped him. Instead of living in Hades, the Lord's angels carried Lazarus to Abraham's side, also often called Abraham's bosom. It's this um, place that believers went when they died before the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, living after the resurrection of Jesus, our joy and death will be even greater because we will be in the presence of our Lord. Second Corinthians 5 8 uh, tells us just that when your soul is away from your body, when you are dead, you are in the presence uh, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's what's theologically called intermediate state, if that is of interest to you further. Uh, and so then later at Jesus' return, we're going to be resurrected, we're going to be united with our glorified bodies into paradise. One, everything that you wish the world could be, well, no, you probably wish the world's going to be something that won't be, because you're messed up, like I'm messed up. Uh, but it will be perfect in the way that the Lord actually intends the world to be. Now, from the wider context of Luke 16, we know that Lazarus goes to heaven, not because he's poor, but because he believed the promises of God, he loved God. And the love of God for Lazarus is absolutely clear at this point of eternity. And again, we, we don't want to judge in a very small second, right? We struggle in this life. Don't make that the judgment of God's love for you. Uh, make the cross the judgment of God's love for you. The situation of the rich man here is, is quite different than Lazarus. He had everything in life, and now he has everything. He has nothing. He finds himself in Hades. Uh, this gets a little confusing because Hades is, is not the usual name for hell that we see in the scriptures. Uh, in the Old Testament, Hades is just this generic term for that they have died and they've gone to, to Hades, right? Uh, it's this idea of like we might use the word the grave. It's just they're gone. Uh, it's their death. But in the New Testament, it, this word Hades is, is used as a place of torment, just like we see here. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, you'll see that every place the word Hades is used, it's, it's a reference to someone who is, who is condemned, an unbeliever. It's, it is synonymous with how the way it's used in the New Testament, and that's the case right here. Now, uh, let's move to this next section, starting in verse 24, if you got it out in front of you. This here is actually the only passage in all of Scripture that describes to us the feelings somebody has after his life or her, her life, uh, after they've died to actually see some idea of the experience. And the first thing that we learn is that immediately after death, both believers and unbelievers are very aware of their eternal condition. Long-suffering in hell or eternal blessings in the kingdom of God. Heaven or hell is what we generally put this. And so the rich man in the afterlife is now certain of hell. He has no doubts. There's, there's no questions in his mind no matter what he might have lived in life. He now knows it for sure. And yet what we see, he's not even repenting at this point. That's not what he tries to do. All he really wants is some relief from the suffering that he's dealing with at this moment. When you look at it, it's, it's not much of a request. He's not asking for a route for you for a drink. He's not asking for air conditioning. He's not asking to be pulled out of this. It's, it's simply a request for what equates to a drop of water on the finger of Lazarus. Um, this request is, is denied outright. See, God is a God of mercy. He absolutely is. That's, that's what we learn in the gospel. But 
what he reveals through this word is that he has no mercy on those who die in their sin. And you might not like it, but that's the way God reveals it. Now, in the life to come, mercy is reserved for those who, through faith in Christ, are declared righteous. That's where the mercy of God will be. For all others, what we'll see is justice. And justice for sinners is not a pretty picture. Now, there's a little detail in here. This is the only parable that ever mentions anyone with a, a specific name. Everyone else is generic. Uh, in all the other parables, Jesus says. Uh, but in this one, did you notice that, that the you know, rich boy says... Uh, he knows Lazarus' name, and that's the significant thing here, because even from a distance, as he's looking over this massive chasm, he can recognize, oh, the man next to Abraham, that's Lazarus, and immediately know, oh, you know who Lazarus is. He's not just some faceless guy outside your door. You, you passed along him enough, someone told you about him, you interacted with him in some way, but, but you know his actual name, and yet you never showed him any compassion. Rich man was unwilling to go outside his gate to show compassion to Lazarus. And now here he is requesting that Lazarus be sent across a chasm to show mercy to him. Abraham denies this simple request, and, and while his response might seem harsh to us, it's not harsh. It's, uh, it's just a very hard truth. And very hard truths often sound harsh. He says, uh, Child, uh, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. Just kind of the facts there, right? You're not going to do that because of facts. You probably already know the facts. In verse 26, he points out because of the great chasm that the rich man is never going to be able to cross, or the other way either. His, his condition is permanent. Um, then in verse 27, the rich man makes a second request. He says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. You know, it's too late for me, but my brothers, finally, he, he actually cares about someone other than himself. He cares about his family, and, and, and he wants to make sure they don't get there, and so he makes this request. And, and Abraham just says, you know what, they have the word of God. They, they already have the warning. They already have what they need. And, and this, we see the rich man, right? He's more adamant. He rejects that. He, he desperately pleads, saying, no, Father Abraham. But if someone will go to them from the dead, then they will repeat. That the rich man is essentially saying, you know what? But Abraham, the scriptures aren't enough. That's not enough information. That's not what they need. What they need is a miracle. Let me ask you, at any point in life, you ever pray at any point, you know, maybe years ago, you ever prayed something on the lines of, God, if you'll just speak audibly to me, it, it, or, you know, if you'll just do this miraculous sign, if you'll just do something amazing that's unexpected, you know, then I'll know you exist, then I'll be sure, then I'll really believe in you in, in, in that way. Have you ever done anything like that? And I don't know you, but I know I've, I've run into a number of people where, where that's been the case. They just want something miraculous before they're going to believe what they see in, the, in this book. Um, you remember what Hebrews 11 one tells us faith is, though? It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. See, when we ask for more than God's word, what we're saying is this, God, I, I will have faith in you. I'm willing to do that, just as long as you remove the necessity of me having faith in you. In other words, prove yourself without a shadow of doubt, and I'll believe you. Not faith. See, in Abraham's response in this parable, 
Uh, now, it is the first of, of eight applications I want to give you. That's a lot. That's a ton of applications, actually. Um, more, than, more than I would typically give you, right? Uh, anyway, I also don't need to do them this way, but eight of them, they're short mostly. Uh, but the first one is this, is that faith doesn't come through signs and wonders or visions or visits from angels, but faith comes through hearing the gospel. Right? That's Hebrews 10, 17, for sure. We see a number of other places. Uh, Jesus is teaching that real faith is not the result of seeing a miracle. Real faith is the miracle. Real faith is a work that God has done. Real faith actually, though, comes through the ordinary means of, of reading the scriptures. It comes through uh, someone teaching us about Christ and about the, uh, about the cross and about the empty tomb and calling us to place our faith in Jesus. Yeah, that's why this parable ends in this really kind of unsatisfying way with Abraham just stating unequivocally, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise Dead. It's not more evidence that's needed. Right? It's not that God has failed to give enough evidence for belief. If someone will not believe the words of these holy scriptures that Christ is who he says he is, and we are who it says we are, that if we need a Savior like Christ, if we will not believe that, then even if someone rises from the dead and warns them, there's no way they're going to believe. That's not what they need. Uh, we actually see this event occur in the ministry of Jesus, and I know you want to go right to the resurrection of Christ, but, uh, but even before that, in John 11, Jesus raises the other Lazarus, right? Mary and Martha's brother, he dies, and, and Jesus raises him back from the dead. And at that moment, we kind of expect everyone's just going to bow down and worship Jesus, because he just raised him from the dead. You know, I was walking the cemetery this morning, Laura, and, and I couldn't help but think, you know, if, if, if someone walked up and just was like, come on out, and someone dug out of a grave right there, I'd be like, you must be God, uh, you know, or something along those lines, especially if, if you've seen all the other things Jesus has been doing, and, and they see this, and, and what we don't expect to happen is in the very next paragraph, some of the Pharisees are plotting to kill him. That's their response to this miraculous event. Uh, and so the application here is that if you don't believe in Jesus, or if you do, but you're struggling with doubt, don't, don't ask God for the miraculous sign. Don't ask God for the wonders. Ask that the Lord would give you faith, and then just immerse yourself in His work. It's a means of grace, but an extraordinarily powerful, ordinary means of grace. Now, you don't need a, a sign. You, you need the ministry of the Word. You need to be reading it, discussing it, studying it, listening to the Word preach, wrestling with it, well, asking the Holy Spirit to give you faith to believe this is the Word of God. So that's the first application. I swear the rest is shorter. Uh, there are seven more. That's a lot. In the words of Ben Richter, you know, apps for everyone. Uh, so application number two. God cares about his children, especially in death. Uh, death is a terrifying thing. I think sometimes we, we feel guilty for that, uh, feeling terrified of death on any level. Uh, I remember my grandmother was dying of pancreatic cancer, and she was getting close to the end of a lot of pain and going to, to talk with her, and just asking her about Jesus, and she was afraid. And, and she said, yeah, I, I am afraid, not because I doubt that Jesus saved me, but because I don't know what happens. When I close my eyes the last time, I don't know what to expect, what's going to be, that there's so much unknowing, and that, that's just scary to me. 
That sort of fear is, is normal. I think we're by nature afraid of the things we don't understand, the things we don't uh, have laid out for us well. You know, if you ever walk into a new situation, even that might be scary to you. Um, but, but Christians, let us learn from this passage that even with that aspect of, the, of maybe some concern, or learn from this passage that we can be certain that our Lord is compassionate, that our Lord is kind, that He cares for His children, He, he cares for His bride, the church, He cares for you uh, if you're one of His children, and, and, and He cares for your soul. He's going to take good care of your soul at death, just like we see Jesus do with Lazarus in this parable. Uh, third application is particularly for believers who suffer. Uh, it's important, I think. Our suffering in this life will end, but there will be no suffering in the life to come. Right? That's not a vague hope. That's not something like, boy, will that be great. It's an absolute certainty. So, so no matter what you're, you might be struggling with in this life, it, it has a limited period of existence for you if you're faithful to Christ. Uh, right? And, and so and, and if you've suffered in this life, either financially, medically, emotionally, whatever that might look like, I, I want you to be encouraged by this passage here where we see the Lord receive a soul, uh, a suffering soul, into his kingdom where there's going to be no suffering ever again. Ever. And so if suffering is your life, I want you to make yourself familiar with Romans 8, 12. Uh, which says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is being revealed to us. Right? The future eternity is amazing no matter what now looks like. So hold tight to that eternal view when suffering tempts you to question the love of God for you. Um, or, you know, in the words of, uh, I saw Derek Urban actually respond to someone this week. Uh, online saying, being a Christian doesn't mean physical blessings here and now, but it does mean eternal blessings in the life to come. That's reality, believe it. Uh, application four. I swear they're going to get shorter, right? An uh, easy and comfortable life may blind you of your need of a Savior, meaning there are reasons we should be actually thankful that our life is not as easy and comfortable as we might want. Um, because we might want to look at someone's life and you're like, they have everything. Like, they're crazy rich, they're all like super attractive and healthy and they take vacations and have nice clothes, gadgets, everything. You think, I wish that was my life. That's the life that I want. Um, and and it, it's a lot like that when we look at that, though, is this that when, when I, I, years ago, I remember learning about this rare nerve condition of a word I can't pronounce, and I would say something really wrong if I tried to pronounce it. I'm not going to try it. Uh, but the way it works is, is you don't feel pain. So you take a knife and you stab it again. You don't you don't feel any pain, right? You break your arm, there's no pain. Root canal, no pain. You're up in the middle of the night, you step on a Lego. Most painful thing in the world, no pain. Uh, and, and I remember thinking when I first heard that, I want that disease. How do I get that disease? Is it contagious? That's the one I want. And then someone pointed out to me, you don't want that disease uh, because you, know, you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't feel the pain. The rest of us pull our hand off because we feel the pain, but you, you just get really, really bad burns or whatever it might be. Or, or you don't feel the pain, so you don't go to the doctor, so you don't get the diagnosis you need. In other words, the pain is there on purpose. That's not a result of the fall. It's a part of God's design that we're actually capable of feeling pain, right? Um, I haven't thought theologically about whether it's a fall, so don't, don't hold me to that one. Uh, anyway, it prompts us to avoid 
injuries, right? So a pain-free life might look desirable, but it's a gift to feel the pain of the sinful world that we live in. It's a gift that we, we even emotionally can feel the ugliness of all the realities of sin in the world because it shows us how desperately we need a Savior, and that's good. Um, and so in that regard, there are times when we can just thank the Lord that we do get to experience pain because of the way it drives us forward who is our Savior. Uh, fifth application, a person's financial situation in life <clears throat> has zero to do with his relationship with God, his eternal position. There is no amount of money we need to be in good standing, to be in relationship, to be eternally secure in the Lord. Yeah. You cannot get poor enough that you can't come to Christ. Uh, Jeff Bezos and you, right, $114 billion, Jeff Bezos and you, whatever your financial number might be, you have the exact same hope, one hope, uh, for eternal salvation, and that's in Jesus Christ. And neither of you has an advantage over the other, except by the grace of God. Uh, money cannot buy the grace of God. And so enjoy the good gifts of God, including money, but always be generous with your wealth. It is far less valuable than your faith. It is far less valuable than your soul. Sixth application, heaven and hell are real. This one's important. Um, according to Jesus, everyone, including you, is either going to go to one place, hell or heaven, after you die, but never to both. There's no switch. And I say it's an important one because theological liberalism, liberalism has not only found its way into churches, it's found its way into the cultural mainstream. And so you've probably heard something along the lines of God is a God of love. He affirms, accepts everything, and because of that, he would never condemn anyone to hell. If there's a hell, it's going to be empty. I, I heard a pastor once tell me. Um, there is nothing biblical, scriptural about that. That is nothing that God has revealed. Right? Even here, here is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Right? Jesus, who is love, teaching that God does indeed condemn sinners to hell. Um, years ago, many, many years ago now, there's an episode of VR. I don't even know if it's on TV anymore. So, many years ago. Anyway, uh, that has always stuck with me. There's this retired uh, doctor who's now dying of some form of cancer, and he's in the hospital bed, uh, hooked up to all kinds of stuff, and, and, and he's near the end, and he's feeling this guilt because at one point in his life as a doctor, he administered uh, lethal injection to a man who was later proven to be innocent, and so he's got this guilt that I, I, I killed an innocent man, and, and he's asking this question, he's literally using the word atone, can my sin be atoned for? And, and the man calls for a chaplain, and he begins to ask questions of her, and, and she, this liberal chaplain, says that all these, like, really nice, God is love, don't feel guilty, you just need to push it away, uh, to this man, and he, and he becomes so upset, the, the, the character, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm dying, I don't have time for this nonsense, and, and finally he tells the physician that's been caring for him to, to get her out of her, he says, I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. Because he wants to know the truth. He is so desperate at this moment that none of that stuff matters. I need to know what's real. And, and when we're facing death, and we're always facing death, believe that, that the biblical doctrine of heaven and hell truly matters. And it shapes our life. It's important that we actually, on a regular basis, are aware of this doctrine, right? Do you believe in real heaven and real heaven? Uh, real hell, real heaven. The, the doctrine of heaven is very precious to people who are suffering. It is. To those who are, are tired of watching maybe uh, the culture we live in, 
uh, degrade more and more people who are tired of, of racism and abuse and coronavirus and, and abortion and people that are tired of watching their parents and their children and their loved ones suffer and die. The doctrine of heaven is, is precious, very precious to men and women who are just sick of their own sin and, and long to, to know that beyond this life the Lord has gifted us, these things will be the right. Uh, those are the people that long for heaven, but we must have this doctrine ready in our mind to have that effect on us. Uh, and so look at the suffering in the world and and in your life, and, and, and this is where you, brothers and sisters, can look at all the suffering in your life in the world and just kind of exhale. Because you know heaven is real. You know this is a sure thing. And you know because of the grace of God and faith in Christ that, that is yours. Uh, no matter how bad it is, humanity has everything out. Jesus will fix it all. And if your faith finds rest in Jesus, that's your future. Uh, seventh application, uh, the fate of the dead cannot be reversed, so preach the gospel now. Uh, as Bill Reichen put it, hell has no exit. And so by the time an unbeliever gets there, it'll be too late to be saved, too late to hear the gospel, too late to believe in Jesus, too late to beg for mercy, and too late to avoid the everlasting agony of eternity without God. Brothers and sisters, now is the time to proclaim the gospel for those who care for Everyone, right? Uh, until the return of Christ, there will always be an urgency to proclaim the gospel to the rich, to the poor, to the healthy, to the sick, to the young, to the old, to everyone. Last one, right? Finally got to eight. Uh, and here's the thing. This last one's not even an application. It's more of a reminder, something you need to hear. Uh, I printed the bulletins too early this week. If I had not, this would have been our affirmation of faith today. Uh, it's just, I want you to listen to the Heidelberg Catechism in question one, and what a comfort it is to you, and living in a world of sin, and being sinful people, to know that your faith is in Christ, and all that that gives us comfort. Uh, so the question is this, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the powers of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, and he all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on Finally, I just want to end with the words of our Lord in John 5, 24, where he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in the judgment, but has passed from life to death. Our comfort is always the Lord Jesus Christ, so he has done for us. Let us, let us pray. Now, Father, thank you. Thank you for a passage like we've just read this time. Thank you for opening our eyes to a life that continues after the one we currently live in. So please give us faith, or please give faith to those who lack faith. Please help to help us to endure whatever suffering you have ordained for us, to do so with a strong confidence that because of what Christ has done for us, because of the redemption you have secured for us, because of the empty tomb, we can look forward 
to your glorious kingdom where hunger, sores, disease, and all the sin that we see and experience in the world and in our own hearts no longer exist. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.